0: Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey, and me, Jonathan Gullis. On Inside Whitehall, we try to dissect topics and issues that are discussed widely but sometimes not fully understood. In the coming weeks, we're sure to hear more about the UK's membership of the ECHR, notwithstanding clauses, derogations, terms like this. What do they all mean? Join us today to find out. We couldn't have asked for a better guest to cover the issue, and or someone better qualified. So, thank you so much for joining us, Robert Buckland KC. Pleasure to be here. So Robert has had a prominent career in both law and politics, having practiced law for nearly two decades before entering parliament. During his career in the legal profession, Sir Robert was a specialist in criminal law and served time as a part-time crown court circuit judge. Entering parliament in 2010, he went on to serve in several senior cabinet roles in government, including Solicitor General, Minister for State for Prisons and Probation, Secretary of State for Justice, which includes Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Wales. Mm -hmm. We always start on the, on Inside Whitehall, by just asking how and why you had a great legal career. I'm sure you were enjoying that and the trappings of that. Why did you decide to move away from that and go into (laughs) parliament? (laughs) Well, the truth is that I've been interested in politics and
1: policy for more years than I care to remember. I joined the party, the Tory party in the middle of the miners' strike. I uh, really didn't like what I was seeing from hard left trade unions trying to take over the country. I thought that was a bad thing. I joined the Conservatives and I've been there ever since. Uh, and I've been a councillor, candidate on a number of occasions whilst I was practising at the bar. So my career was the law, uh, but my passion was politics. And I've always felt you've got to get involved to make a change rather than sitting on the sidelines and being, dare I say, on a programme like this, a commentator.
0: Yes, quite. So did, you always had a view that you were eventually going to go in. It wasn't a kind of late, like, you kind of knew at some point I'll go make yeah. that change. I felt long ago that I was going to do this. It was something
1: I had to do. I didn't want to die wondering. I wanted to get involved. And then I did get, at last,
0: elected in 2010. Brilliant. And so today we thought we'd look at, obviously with the recent judgment on Rwanda, we're going to see legislation of some sort, we don't yet know what, uh, come into Parliament. And I think one of the things that will, that will throw up is a lot of terminology, a lot of discussion of our membership of things or other acts of yeah. parliament that connect to it. Yeah. And so just to begin with, I, I was hoping that I could give you some quick fire questions. Okay. And a, qu- and a few quick explainers. So <clears throat> if you could explain to us, what is the European Convention on Human Rights? Does, how does that relate to connect to the Human Rights Act? Yeah. And also relevant, I think, is the Refugee, the 1951 yeah. Convention. It, it, if you could give us a kind of quick explainer on those things.
1: Yeah, well, well basically, uh, the European Convention is a treaty. It was a treaty that we signed back in 1950, uh, along with a number of other countries in Western Europe. Of course, the Eastern Bloc was uh, under communist control. And it was designed by British conservative lawyers, in fact, led by Lord Kilmure, some David Maxwell Fife, who was a Home Secretary and then later Lord Chancellor, who prosecuted at Nuremberg. So he felt very strongly that we needed to make sure that Europe had fundamental rights and freedoms that would reduce the risk of Nazism and dictatorship rising again. Very laudable and correct uh, uh, views. And we've led, we led uh, that organisation. There's a, an underpinning political organisation called the Council of Europe, nothing to do with the European Union, which uh, consists of most European countries. In fact, at one point, all European countries, Russia having now left. Um, and that is very much the political underpinning of what I think most people regard as very sensible, almost self-evident truths about the importance of having underpinning uh, uh, treaties in order to guarantee, help guarantee our freedoms. Um, the court which sits in strasbourg again different from the european court of justice that sits in luxembourg we're not a member of that anymore has d- evolved over the uh, decades into a body that helps to interpret and if you like police uh, the convention um where the uk isn't part of the, the the proceedings you know most proceedings don't involve us the court's judgments are, are interesting but they're, they're not they're not binding it's where the uk is a party to the proceedings you know say bloggins versus the uk right. that then the judgment if it's if it's if it's made is binding on us and the number of times that happens isn't very many uh, very often it's on very sort of prosaic and boring issues sometimes it'll engage issues that really do ignite the political debate. And in recent years, we've had prisoner voting, yes, we had Abukatada, remember him? Yeah, And we also had whole life sentences. But perhaps we can talk a bit more about what actually happened in those cases, rather than what some people think happened, and what some people
0: think the court is. Mm. That would be brilliant. And so unpacking as well, just a few bits of terminology before mm. we kind of get into yeah. more of the issue. And the other thing is, which I'm sure we're going to hear is derogating. Uh, and it relates to notwithstanding clauses that is perhaps maybe going to be tabled as amendments if legislation comes mm. forward mm. would you be able to just explain what what do they mean right. the other thing i'm interested in so yeah. robert as well is have we done them before is they are they with with precedent okay well
1: first of all derogation that's a, that's a separate thing that a country can do with regard to certain provisions within the convention. Now, the French did it on um, some provisions within the convention uh, a long time ago. However, some of the provisions, like the right to, yeah, not to be tortured and the right to life, are fundamental, and you can't derogate from them. So when you look at some of the other provisions, that actually, more than derogation, you've got quite a lot of qualifications. So let's take privacy, you know, the right mm. to privacy, Article 8. It's full of qualifications. So national security, uh, you know, there, there, there are lots of sensible Qualifications there that you can use to exempt yourself from that right. Now you construe those narrowly, you construe the rights widely, but you know the idea that somehow they are absolutely inalienable and there's no means of challenging them is not correct. You mentioned the notwithstanding clause. That's something that relates to our homegrown law, our domestic law domestic here in law. the UK, where you might uh, put together a, um, a provision or a bill which has a notwithstanding clause in it. We've seen it on a couple of occasions in recent years. We saw it in the United Kingdom Internal Markets Bill when we were trying to deal with the problem of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Of and you remember there were negotiations between Michael Gove and Mara Sefkevich to try and iron out some of the problems. As it happened, they reached an agreement and we didn't need those clauses, but there was a big noise. I was Lord Chancellor at the time. Mm. People were saying that we were breaking the law and really getting quite sort of uh, worked up about about the issue. Then we had it in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill last year, where we did a similar thing. Again, a lot of noise. In the end, we didn't need the bill uh, because we brought forward the Windsor uh, Agreement and that has... To some large measure, resolved a lot of the issues. We let to see how it precisely works. Now, notwithstanding is a very sort of grand way of describing uh, an ouster of the mm. court's jurisdiction. You're basically saying this decision cannot be challenged by a court anywhere. Now, we have done that. In fact, I've done that. So, in a Judicial Review Reform Act of 2022 that I got going when I was uh, in charge, and then Dominic Barb. Uh, Completed it. We put an ouster clause in to prevent the courts from getting involved in certain immigration appeals because we felt very strongly that there were plenty of rights uh, to to appeal immigration decisions, and the courts had gone a bit too far in creating another jurisdiction. It's stopping them going on and on and on. Exactly, exactly. It was called the Cart Review, the Cart Jurisdiction, which basically allowed you to review the review, which Mm. we thought was. I thought was daft. Uh, We did a consultation. Most people agreed it was unnecessary, Of course, we had a few voices telling me that I was some sort of authoritarian dictator, a bit novel for me. Um, But the ouster clause has just been tested in the High Court and the Court of Appeal, Mm. and it's proved to be watertight. The judges have said, this is fine. This works. This is a clear intention of parliament. We're not going to interfere. So you can do it, but you need a very clear rationale. And you need to explain it very, very clearly before you rush off and try and do something too big. And I'll tell you a story about David Lammy and an ouster clause in a little while if you want to hear that. Would
0: definitely love to hear that. One on that clause still. So, because I think one of the things, if this were to come in, there's a everyone's looking at the timelines of events. So legislation potentially coming in, potential court challenges, etc. So, whatever your view is on the policy of Rwanda, for anyone listening, I think a central question that'll be asked in British politics is. Will it actually happen?
1: Yeah, Whether
0: do you think it's good or bad? yeah, exactly. and so on on the on the ouster clauses, it's it's a case that you're saying you can't you know keep challenging this or you can't challenge this particular thing. you'll give a message to the courts. but it's still the case as far as I understand that you can test that in the courts. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It doesn't you, close down a court case. so no. so we had a challenge to the ouster clause that we
1: passed in Parliament the other day. they they couldn't strike down the legislation, you can't strike down primary legislation in the UK. You can get a declaration uh, that um, it's of no effect or uh, in some way unlawful, and you can cite the European Convention if you want to. But more fundamentally than that, what you've got to avoid is too much overreach and trying to create an ouster that is too ambitious because that it creates more risks that is likely not to have the effect that you want it to. And that's the danger. That's the danger with notwithstanding clauses, plus the fact you are really setting up a bit of a fight between domestic law and our international treaty obligations. Now, we're entitled to look at them in two ways. We, we have what we call a dualist system of law. We've got our international obligations and our domestic obligations, but it's desirable, if not Vital that the two align. And it's where they f- fall into alignment, uh, into uh, non alignment, that you get problems. And this is why I'm one of the voices saying proceed with great care on notwithstanding clauses and preferably find a better way to deliver the Rwanda policy.
2: It's interesting because we were talking about the domestic legislation as well. And we're going to hear a lot about the Human Rights Act and its interaction yeah. and relationship with mm. the European Convention yes. of Human Rights. I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners. How what the relationship is between the two there?
1: Well, Jonathan, you're right to mention it, because it wasn't until 1998 that the Human Rights Act was passed. It was a new Labour uh, creation. It came into force in the year 2000. What that did was uh, directly incorporate the provisions of the Convention into domestic British law. So it didn't just cut and paste. What it did was, through its various provisions... Allow for domestic use, domestic enforcement of human rights of the Human Rights Convention. Now, there's been a long-standing right of individuals to petition Strasbourg, mm. which was done for a long time prior to the Human Rights Act. Uh, and what would happen is, you know, a decision made by a uh, by a higher court here, you then go straight to Strasbourg and make a petition. And so the argument was that that actually caused more unpredictability and handed more. Authority to the Strasbourg Court, rather than allowing the UK courts to just sort of mind their own business, manage it here at home, and then sort of you know offer an explanation, uh, which could then be used if the case went further on to Strasbourg. Now, I think that's laudable. I can understand why. I was always a sceptic about the Human Rights Act, mainly because I am worried about the tension that you create between our common law tradition here in the UK, in England, in particular England and Wales, and this rights-based concept of law, which is a very different way of looking at law. There's no doubt there's a tension between the two. And it's managing that tension that I think is vital. So had I stayed in office, I would have reformed the human rights act. I'd have tweaked it in some key Respect. Not got rid of it though. I want to have got rid of it. I don't think we needed to, because I think that by getting rid of it, if you don't leave the convention, you still have a right to petition. So it'll mm. actually solve that issue. But by tweaking it, by reforming it, by making it even clearer that the decisions of Strasbourg are not binding on the courts of uh, England and Wales and Scotland.
0: And the Ireland. decisions we're not a party to.
1: Exactly. The decisions that we're not a party to, the decisions we are a party to, Article 46 makes them binding, but if they're not if we're not a party to them very interesting, we can look at them, but we're not bound by them. And I think that's the big difference between this court and the European Court of Justice, the EU court, which is binding, right. because it interprets EU law, and that interpretation is binding.
0: Yes, that that essentially becomes part of the Constitution almost.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's like a constitutional court that interprets the EU law, and then, you see, what happens there, you never appe- used to appeal to it, you, you make a reference mm. to get Luxembourg to clarify what the word, what do you really mean by meant. this? Exactly. And then we'd be bound by that. But that was all about EU law. Mm. And that's the big difference between that mechanism and the European uh, Court in Strasbourg.
2: So it's interesting because obviously, if for those who are reading the newspapers, I'm going to use a terminology as produced by the newspapers, which is there's this, in milk terms, there's skimmed, semi-skimmed and full fat in terms mm. of options on the table. Some saying the skimmed option is the simply to designate Rwanda, a safe third country. The semi-skimmed is to designate it as safe for their country and disapply or withdraw in this area of law, the Human Rights Act, domestic legislation. And then there's the full fat, which is which some people are arguing for, which is the the previous two options and also a notwithstanding clause that would include any ECHR judgments, refugee convention and any other international treaties that the Supreme Court themselves had listed in their judgment. Out of Obviously, we've heard there superbly about how the Human Rights Act and that sort of interaction. I think what's interesting is that the convention, and as you and I both know, with legislation, the government has to, in every bill, say how, if the bill is within the convention, and we know that the Illegal Migration Act, the controversy was that the reassurance could not be given on the face of the bill, that it meant how... Why is it, for listeners, that the UK government has to claim it's within the European Convention when it could, rather than just the the Human Rights Act, which is, as you would argue, you know, sort of looking at taking what we've already got from the European Convention into UK law? Well, in effect, I
1: mean, the Human Rights Act says that, you know, you should construe uh, laws in a way that's compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, yeah? So the Declaration of Compatibility flows from that. Now, um... I always, I mean, it was, I viewed it as important that we did seek to try and create legislation that was compatible. But I wasn't one of these people that was necessarily frightened to say it was incompatible. You run a higher risk of challenge, but ultimately, the court cannot, like in the US, strike the law down and say it has no effect. What the court can do is make a declaration that the law is incompatible with the convention and ask either ask Parliament to think again. That's Section Four. Or do something under Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, which is reading it down and interpreting it in a way that would make it com- compatible. I'll give you an example. A long time ago, the Labour government passed a law that really tightened up on the cross-examination of rape victims about their previous sexual experiences. Now, uh, you can see why it was done. Uh, you know, it was a big call to stop dragging people through the mud unnecessarily necessarily. Um, but there was a challenge. And the then House of Lords, the predecessor to the Supreme Court, actually read down the provisions in Harriet Harman's uh, bill. It was her act. She she put it through, helped put it through, to make it slightly wider, to allow for the fact that, you know, that was all very well, but it wasn't compatible with an Article 6 fair trial. Now, some people would say that was the convention working in quite a sensible way to make sure we have fair trials in the UK. But I can tell you, it was extremely controversial Mm. uh, at the time. Now, I personally think that when you put judges in that position where they're having to read down or interpret legislation, you're bringing them into politics a lot. I would personally get rid of Section 3 and say, look, you can either make a declaration that's incompatible, but send it back to Parliament. It's for Parliament to decide, not the judges. Uh, And one of the the big tensions we have in the Human Rights Act, in my view, is that because human rights, this tension between rights-based law and our type of law, you're inviting judges into quite a difficult space and they're having to make often decisions that are more akin to policy-based decisions than ones on the law. And Jonathan Sumption's made this point better than I could. I think he's right about that, which is why, as Lord Chancellor, I was trying to find ways in which we could take judges out of that as much as possible and you know make sure that they were there to, to do their job as lawyers, hmm. to use their legal skill and their legal expertise to interpret the law. Um, and that's that's the tension that we have with human rights. And I don't pretend it's uh, you know everything in the garden's lovely. It's difficult, it's difficult stuff. But um, I think it's our job to try and find ways in which we can solve these problems rather than saying that's it. We've got to walk.
2: I think it's interesting that you say, obviously, almost wanting to make sure we really do respect that separation of powers. You know, unlike we see in America, where a president will appoint to the Supreme Court, obviously getting the Senate's approval, whereas in here we want to, as you say, respect. And that's why, you know, people like myself, even though I was very clear, and I know others were as well, maybe not everyone, sadly, but I was very clear that I can dislike the court's judgment but if we are going to truly talk about taking back control, then that means we also have to respect the court's yeah. judgment and the rule of law and then obviously do our job as parliamentarians exactly. to make it apply. With um we've talked a lot about the law. I just want to briefly, again, yeah. a sort of quick fire. We've heard a lot about courts. We've seen three different court cases now, mm. essentially. Can we can you just briefly sum up what are the three courts that applicants oh. are get or petitioning against the Rwanda policy oh, or against Aspects of it. What's the process that they've gone through to get to where we've had the big news story about the Supreme Court?
1: Okay, so stage one was uh, policy comes in. There are about half a dozen cases, I think, decided by the Home Office, signed off. They're on the plane. They're going to get on the plane. They put a challenge in and say, We haven't done this properly. We messed up the process. We're going to challenge the individual cases and we're going to challenge the underlying legality of the policy. It goes to the High Court first, the divisional court, the High Court, Queen's Bench Division. Where some senior judges, you know, very experienced high court judge, uh, uh, judge looks looks at that case and comes to the view that uh, there was uh, an issue with the individual cases and that they weren't done properly, but that the overall policy was lawful. You know, not a bad start. Something for everybody, really. Government saying, "Well, policy is legal. We just messed up the decision making. Let's do it again," and that's what then the court says. That wasn't good enough. Obviously, the applicants were going, Well, hold on, you know, that's very interesting. But there are underlying principles here. We've got to we want to appeal. It's the Court of Appeal in England and Wales. So up it goes to the Court of Appeal. It comes up from I think the judge, who did it in the High Court? I think he was Swift. Uh yes, it was Mr. Justice Swift. It comes up to uh and Mr. Justice uh, Lewis or Justice Clive Lewis, who was sitting in that in the divisional court. It then comes up to the Court of Appeal. And this is a very interesting court. So you've got the Lord Chief Justice, the then Lord Chief Justice, Lord Burnett. You've got the Master of the Rolls, who's the head of the Civil Division of uh, the High Court, who's Sir Geoffrey Voss, very experienced civil judge. And then you've got uh, Lord Justice Underhill, again, very experienced Lord Justice of Appeal. Two of them, Underhill and the Master of the Rolls, say is unlawful. You haven't given us enough evidence to show that Rwanda's a safe country. Ian Burnett, Lord Burnett, says, no, 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 I've looked at the evidence. I think... But the government has shown that this is a safe country. I've seen all the exchanges. I've seen the diplomatic assurances. I'm satisfied that the policy, therefore, is lawful because they have demonstrated it was a safe country. Can I tell you, you look at the judgment, there were loads of different grounds of appeal, loads and loads of arguments. It was unlawful to even think or even send somebody to a third country all chucked out. Mm. Uh, it was. It's not unlawful to use a third country, and rightly so. And it all boiled down to this issue of whether or not the court could be satisfied that Rwanda was a safe country, mm-hmm. according to our domestic law,
0: according to our own—that's exactly. a crucial point. This exactly. is exactly according to our own laws. Exactly, tr- that you guys as parliamentarians correct. or your predecessors have passed. Correct. Is it safe country? Correct. And that's they said no. Correct. And now, unusually,
1: the, the Supreme Court. And this is this is where you know I, I, I raise an eyebrow, but I don't criticise them because case was appealed, it's a civil case, basically the Supreme Court was asked to look at evidence and facts rather than uh, a really important point of law. There was no real novel point of law in this. There was no reinterpretation by the Supreme Court as to how the European Convention works or the Refugee Convention, which we haven't really looked at much in this discussion yet. It was really about the application of domestic law and the evidence that they thought was needed to satisfy uh, them that it was a safe country. If you remember, the argument was a bit, prophesied um, by Boris Johnson in, in an article he wrote in the Daily Mail where he said, well, we might want to ask why we haven't designated Rwanda as a safe country already, according to our law. Mm. And I thought that was a very fair point. And ever since then, really, that, that's been the issue that's stuck in my mind, that ultimately this was a good old-fashioned question of, and therefore boiling it all down, this is why I said what I said last week in the Daily Telegraph, I think arguments about the European Convention, massive red herring, doesn't get us anywhere. Even if we were out to the Convention, we'd still be bound by the domestic law. So I, I think that we're wasting our time when we worry about the European Convention in this case. What is more relevant is the Convention on Refugees, the 1951 Convention, and this term now that people are starting to understand called refoulement. Pref- exactly. Refoulement. I kind of made a joke <laughs> of the other day,
0: which is, um, I'd love to see the Google searches for that word on the Day of the Judgment, as everyone had to repeat them. Just to say one thing, and, yeah. pu- and I do not want to get on the wrong side of this person, so both of you tell me if I'm wrong. The former Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has kind of made an argument in line with yours, so Robert, I think, which is her statement came out, and I, if, if I paraphrase, essentially said there's a lot of work that could have been done over the past 12 months that potentially could have avoided this. Am I correct in saying that? Uh,
1: you are, in essence, and I agree with Pretty. Uh, I think that uh, the policy, having been announced in 2022, there was time to work through and maybe even say, and um, come clean and so say, actually, we think that we need to do a Mark II. We've got more information now about how the scheme can work better. Um, because let's not forget, the court was looking back at things in 2022. You know, and if you hear Lord Reed, who's the president, he was talking about the policy at the time, at uh, the time of the application, the time that these people were going to be deported. Uh, and therefore, you know, there's a big difference between looking at a policy then and looking at what might be the case now or in the future. Which is why I think in this uh, particular example, deeds are everything, evidence is everything. What are we doing in order to not just satisfy the Supreme Court but to show you know demonstrably that this is a safe and sound um uh, policy yeah you know, and I think pretty's right I think there's more we can do and should have done
0: because there's also this question of um can we be sure what will? War- happen once processed in Rwanda. Is that correct? So
1: ultimately what, that's
0: right. what, what you can't do under the ECHR is send someone back to a place which they may be more danger than they currently are. Exactly. And the sad truth was
1: in Rwanda. There were a number of people in various other schemes who'd gone there, who'd then gone back to, for example, Uganda, which if you're an LGBT person eating worse now than it was then. And here's a parallel, if
0: you like, between another famous case. i just sorry to interrupt. Case. Yes. Are those some of the things that were cited as the reasons we couldn't have faith that the process would take place properly?
1: Yes. There was a, there was a report from the United Nations Convention on Human Rights. It was like an evidential report. They, they had concerns about uh, looking at all the evidence, the history of Rwanda, the more recent history, and they weren't satisfied that that could be guaranteed. Wow. UK government said, hold on. You know, the Rwanda government have said this. We've signed memorandums of understanding. We've, we've got a scheme in place that is watertight. Nothing to see here. Right. Um, and that's really now where we need to focus on. This is why I wanted to mention a famous case called Abu Qatada, which is mm. slightly different scenario. We didn't want him here. You know, uh, we wanted to send him to Jordan where he was awaiting, you know, he could stand trial. And for- Theresa May was Home Secretary. Exactly. It took a long time, but in the end, what happened was that Jordan adjusted its criminal justice system and made it fairer and satisfied everybody that she could safely send him back there. And that's what happened. Now, that took quite a few years to do. It seems to me that we should learn from that, fast forward the process in Rwanda so that they take action demonstrably through their domestic law to do that in order to try and replicate the situation. But I think we might have to go further in Rwanda Mark II. And the big problem I think we have is in the particular way we've designed the scheme. Because the scheme isn't a, you lose your appeal, we send you there. We send people, we want to send people there before their status is determined.
0: They're being processed there. Exactly.
1: Now There are ways around that, I think. You can either do the appeals process here, and just do it in in the UK and then send them out if they lose their appeal. Hmm. Or you might have a system whereby you have the, the first application determined here, and then before they appeal, you send them there, and they have a right of appeal from Rwanda.
0: And if they won that appeal, they'd be coming back uh, here? Potentially,
1: if, 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 if um, that could be the case. Um, but I do think we need to perhaps recast this in a way that still allows us to use a third country, but maybe without too much of an exposure to the sort of risk that uh, caused the, the
0: problem here. And so, and I, and I don't want to interpret uh, your words, I'll, I'll ask you the question. Mm. On, so the, currently, from what we know, the government might propose, we know they're going to propose a treaty. Yes. That's clear. J- yeah. James Cleverley, the new Home Secretary, is slated to go to Rwanda, sign a new treaty, come back, and that will be put through Parliament. Yeah. Uh, we know there's going to be some kind of emergency legislation. That bit's less clear. I would suggest. So, from what you're saying, but neither of those things are domestic for Rwanda. It sounds like they're going to be a group. They're they're going to be an agreement between country to country, and they're going to be some kind of domestic UK legislation looking at uh, the Downing Street line was very strongly last week domestic legal frameworks, which to me rules out anything to do with ECHR, and doesn't obviously include Rwanda's own domestic legal yeah. framework. Yeah. From what you've just said, that that would indicate that wouldn't address potentially some of the well, concerns of the court. If, I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert on Rwandan law. If the Rwandan system,
1: let's say they sign a treaty, and Rwandan law means the treaty is immediately has effect in domestic law in Rwanda, right. or fine and dandy, great. Right? But if for whatever reason they need to, you know, ratify the treaty and then pass domestic law, then that's what I think they should be doing in order to help satisfy. You know a reasonable observer that they've got binding rules that prevent people on the UK scheme from being shipped off to Uganda or God knows where. Mm. Um, you know, but I think I think that's a, that's something domestically they could they could really help us with. And then here at home, I think that you know not only passing legislation and ratifying the treaty, but actually just looking again at the scheme to make sure that it doesn't offer hostages to fortune would be where I would be going if I was developing this.
2: Let's say the semi-skimmed option again, as I referred to earlier, and it talks about the disapplying or revoking in this area of law, the human rights act. Mm. If we do that, then like you say, that's the challenge domestically. Will that prevent people being able to make claims to the European Court of human rights? And if they did, would that be one of those cases referred to earlier where it's X versus the UK, which means the judgment would therefore be binding.
1: Uh, well, fundamentally, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're not going to extinguish the right to petition to Strasbourg. So you're, in effect, contracting out the decision-making to the Strasbourg court. You're guaranteeing that the Strasbourg court will be interpreting all of this, and you're not actually giving a chance for a UK court to look at it. And, you know, in my view, it's a safer option to ask a UK court to look at these decisions. I'll give you an example. There was a very famous uh, case called Hutchinson, where uh, somebody challenged the right to, for British courts and English court to pass a a life sentence. Life means life. Yeah. Whole life order. Really important. You know, you and I have supported legislation. I I put through legislation to make child killers serve the whole of their, you know, rightly so. Well, somebody said, Oh, we don't like that. It's not fair. It's not fair. They took it to the, to, to, to uh, Strasbourg. Strasbourg said, "Mm, okay, well, we'd like the English court to look at this. And the, the, Court of Appeal, for the Lord Chief Justice, as he then was, said there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with this because there's a right of uh, review. And, and the, and the pro board, everybody looks at these sentences to make sure that from whatever health reasons, you know, they're, they're being properly run. That of course, you can have whole life orders. And they've been shown to be entirely compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. And therefore, my view, and in fact, we've done things on reverse. But you drug dealers, yep. you know, they've tried to say, "Oh well, we want, you know, we want our money back." You can't just say that it's the proceeds of crime. European Court looked at that and said, "Well, no problem. You know, um, you're entitled to do that. This, this, this is a, you know, particular scenario where it is reasonable." So this idea that you know we're always going to lose is not the case. And, and the number of times we do get found in breach, as I said, is vanishingly small. And that's why I think that you know I get really sort of quite frustrated with some of the argument that seems to equate the reach of the court with perhaps the reach of the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union. I think they're very different creatures, and I think that we should you know uh, just just like you know be, be a be a bit more uh, philosophical about this and actually concentrate on what will make a difference particularly in the, in the, in the Rwanda policy.
2: One of the that we'll hear a lot argued about from politicians and journalists will repeat it, are these Rule 39 orders um, yeah. that were mentioned when it came to removing some of these people off the planes. And look, someone yeah. like myself um, put an amendment forward with Danny Kruger and Bill Cash uh, to the illegal migration bill, as it was then, and effectively, I think, the Prime Minister essentially kind of adopted it to say that with this area of law, Rule 39s. We're instructing the courts to ignore. Can you just briefly explain what these Rule 39s yes. are? Because yes. if I'm not mistaken, they're relatively new.
1: They are relatively new procedure. It's a bit like an interim injunction. Yeah, they've been familiar in in UK law for many years. You know, if I if I've got an emergency situation, I can go for what we call an ex parte injunction. Let's say to prevent publication of something, and the court will look at it, and you know they have to you know be satisfied on a high threshold. And they might then grant the injunction, and then that has to be resolved later by a full hearing. It's a bit similar. Uh, similar. It's not a final outcome, and it's not a final judgment, and therefore it's not binding, in my view, in the same way that a final judgment would be. However, however, it is normal in proceedings like this for the for the the, uh, the defendant or the government or whatever not to do anything that would affect potentially materially affect uh the outcome of the case in other words you know if you let's say let's say we still have the death penalty you you wouldn't you want to hang them before they've had their final appeal would you you'd stay the penalty and say well we won't we won't execute the person until you know they're on death row as they are in america and laws of america and therefore you know the principle of just holding back until the final judgment is one that of course is well known to our domestic law so um I think that even without a Rule 39, you'd still have this this dilemma, really, about, you know, do you send them off or do you keep them here? In my view, I thought the Rule 39 order was bizarre because the judge somehow thought that there was an irreversible harm in sending somebody to Rwanda, whereas, in fact, all we need to do is put them on a plane back to London. That's not an irreversible harm. And therefore, you know, I query the judgment, but I also query whether or not if we, you know, didn't have Rule 39, whether in fact domestic courts would say, well, hold on, don't do anything until we've resolved the issue.
2: Because one of the attacks on these Rule 39s, so they were nicknamed at the times all these pyjama injunctions late at night, no court, no judge named directly. The Prime Minister's um, recently come out and said that actually we've seen changes since that and other European countries had cited concerns, that have been modernisation yes. uh, in this area. Do you want to just outline what, do, from what you know what's happened there? I do. And the Prime Minister, in
1: fact, for the first time for many years, was the Prime Minister who went to a Council of Europe. He went to Reykjavik, uh, I think towards maybe earlier this year or the end of last year, to make these points. And I was very pleased that he did that, because I've been saying for ages that actually there's a hell of a lot you can do via diplomacy. And I'll give you an example. Remember prisoner voting? We had that oh, t- yes. bad judge. I mean, frankly, with respect to that cause, a bad judgment. I read the judgment, very odd judgment. I didn't agree with a word of it. Um, uh, but it was causing us a problem because it was—it affected the UK. Uh, it, it, we were bound to have to um, implement it. Uh, and we found a way to do so via political negotiation because unlike the Court of Justice of the European Union... The decisions from Strasbourg can be the subject of discussion between ministers and to find a way in which you can then comply with the judgment but in a way that is politically acceptable. And it was David Liddington, one of my predecessors as Lord Chancellor, who did negotiate the final settlement. I think prisoners, some prisoners were allowed to have a postal vote if they wished to apply, uh, and it only apply to certain types of prison, a very small number, vanishingly small number. I'd be amazed if there was a, a significant take-up of that particular right, because I'll tell you this, James, I represented a lot of uh, lags in my time, and not one of them has ever said, will I still have my vote <laughs> if I go to fit. prison? Not once! So, you know, the reality met, yeah, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 judgment here. And actually, it was a pretty good outcome in the end for the UK.
0: And of course, the Prime Minister during that time was? Was Cameron Dean. And so we're more, we're likely to hear a bit about that, because I think um, Lord Cameron, as he now is, was asked about his views on the ECHR only last night at the 1922 committee. I read that in the newspaper, Jonathan, I don't know. How it got in there? Well, I wasn't there, but I wasn't surprised to read the
1: reports because I know I long know his views. And uh, when he was prime minister, he used to
0: get quite frustrated. So you think he, George's comments are, are true to a point which is he does have a frustration with the Yeah,
1: point. yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's genuine uh, to the extent that I think he did want reform. Um, so, you know, the idea that him coming back and he's going to say everything in the garden's lovely is is not the case. In fact, when when I heard him, he was coming back, I thought, oh, that's interesting. He'll have views about the convention. Uh, And if you remember, Dominic Grieve was his first attorney general. And in the end, that didn't last. He got rid of Dominic Grieve. I mean, I'm not saying it was purely because of the European convention, but I do think that there were tensions there that were increasingly coming to the fore. And if you remember, we went through a phase of looking at a British Bill of Rights there was a commission, a mm. lot of work done on it. Michael was, was Michael. Michael yeah. Gove was involved. Dominic Raab was a junior minister, justice. Mm. He then came back as my successor and tried to revive the concept. Where were you on Bill of Rights? I think it's a load of rubbish. It's I was very- supposed to be very rude. Uh, <laughs> I think it's it's at worst ineffective and at best dangerous right. because you are in effect importing a rights-based culture directly into English. Or British law, the conflict. And I think there's a conflict, and I think it, it can lead to cries, for, and particularly from the left, for more rights, socio-economic rights, rights to housing, rights to work, rights to benefits. It all sounds great, but I think it's it's a legal minefield, and frankly, it's wrong. Uh, it's not the way to look at how we provide for people. There should be duties on statutory bodies to provide. You know, certain things like social housing or whatever, which we'd all, we'd all agree with. But to then turn the tables and say there's some sort of right, I think, really uh, uh, reverses the way in which we look at the state um, and starts to give immense power to the people who will interpret those rights, the judges. And I don't think it's a place that they particularly want to be. And it's certainly not a place that I want them to be in. And that's what I always tried to avoid when I was Lord Chancellor.
0: And if this topic wasn't difficult enough, I thought it would add, make it even harder to discuss. So one of the other things, if there is a push on for any certain section of the Conservative Party to leave the I think one of the things that is bound to be brought up is its connection to the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, and absolutely right. So I wanted to, and this, I... You know, I heard a lot about this when I was in government during Brexit and the impact that Brexit itself would have on the the, the Good Friday agreement. I was sceptical about some of the claims made there, personally. Um, But on the ECHR, Mm -hmm. we're we're certainly going to hear that that's an underpinning of it and it's crucial. And our membership of it is important to that. Do you agree with that? And is it possible to, in a way that I could understand, explain that?
1: I very strongly agree with it. I I think that, I mean, there's specific mention of the Human Rights Act in the UK. There's a shared underpinning of rights between Britain and the Republic of Ireland. And that, if you think about it, is very important in terms of the underlying philosophy of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement because it allows people to identify as British, allows people to identify as Irish, or both. And that's the whole point about this, that, that, that this was a way in which... The institutions of Northern Ireland, uh, into you know between in the UK north south between uh, which is Strand Two of the agreement, and then east west which is Strand Three, which of course has become very better known as a result of the protocol. Mm. Once you start to unpick this, you're doing so at your peril, because there isn't, with the best will in the world, in Northern Ireland, still 25 years on, a shared sense of what civil rights. Freedoms, human rights mean. And, and, and you hear different language, different approaches from the different communities about that. So the idea that somehow, you know, nothing to see here, we have moved on from Good Friday Belfast, I think is a dangerous, uh, um, it's dangerously complacent. And we, we can't afford that at this time. I mean, putting aside, you know, whether you're right, whether you agree with remain or leave, I said at the time that the ineluctable logic of leave was a hard border between the republic because not because we wanted it but because the single market demanded it and we've had to live with the consequences of that ever since it was a fiendish problem that i think we've reached a fairly reasonable position on though do i like to see northern ireland being treated differently from the rest of britain not really because i'm a unionist mm. i'm a very profound and deep unionist uh, as a welshman you know living in a in a in britain i feel very strongly about the union and therefore, what I wouldn't want to see is our leaving the ECHR potentially create another problem for Northern Ireland that could lead some there to say, well, tell you what, why don't you make Northern Ireland part of it and the rest of GB not part of it? Aren't we driving another wedge mm. in the United Kingdom?
0: I think, I think that would be a very foolish move. And earlier we touched on, uh, on the well, we've talked about the whole issue about whether whether is a safe country and some of the evidence. And then now the talk, part of the talk is just passing that through Parliament. And the discussion around that is, so far as I've read in the media, is that would face issue in the Lords in particular. Why, given the discussion we've had, which is there's very technical details, there's yeah. domestic legislation in Rwanda that would be looked at, there's historical actions of the Rwandan government, you know, yeah. rightly or wrongly, that have been looked at with, for, for UN reports. It's, it feels like a way, but also potentially simplistic, just for Parliament to say well, we've looked at it, we're just going to pass a bit, we're just going to say it's safe. But also there are people saying maybe that's necessary to give a signal to the courts that it's been considered by MPs mm. and it's been looked at by MPs and mm. they consider it safe. It, is it. How simple is it in terms of passing that and just declaring you, it a safe you, country?
1: You've got to be very careful of passing declaratory legislation. So you can pass a law on anything. You, know, you can say, uh, well, we did actually in the Scotland Act uh, this was the act in the middle of the decade, last decade, where we'd gone, you know, after the referendum, we'd, we'd done, remember, the pledge, you know, mm. Gordon Brown's pledge. We then enacted that in the Scotland Act. And in, yeah. act, in clause two, we said, the Sewell Convention will be binding on all parties. Now, for those of you who are really interested in devolution, the Sewell Convention was an informal agreement by Lord Sewell, who was a Labour peer at the time, Labour minister, that the UK would not normally legislate, for matters applying to Scotland. yeah. So in yes. other words, not normally. We'd let the Scots get on with it in, in the spirit of devolution. It's not actually you know, an enforceable law, but we then, in Section 2 of this Act, said the Sewell Convention will apply. Now, that is what we call declaratory legislation. It doesn't really have much effect, but it makes people feel good, and it made the Scots and Acts feel a bit good you know, that they had this. And actually, he was exposed as such. In Remember that case about the triggering of Article 50 way yeah. back in 2017? Yeah. That's what the Supreme Court described as that section to us. And my worry is, is if you pass laws saying Rwanda's a safe country, somebody will say, well, hold on, that's just declaratory legislation. What does it mean? What you know, what, what we got to back it up? And this is Jonathan Sumption's point, Lord Sumption, who has said that you shouldn't use law to try and change the facts, where the facts have been established by the court. This isn't changing law to change the interpretation that the Supreme Court has put on the law. This is just saying, well, you said it was white, we're going to say it's green. Yeah? And I think he's right. So you're going to have to do more behind that legislation to say, not only are we saying Rwanda is a safe country, it is a safe country because. And unless you do the because bit. I'm very worried that this legislation will just raise expectations and then once again it'll all come crashing down. And we'll look into Well, yeah, potentially. Courts aren't going to be able to strike it out, but they aren't going to be able to comment about it and its true effect in law.
2: It's interesting you mentioned Jonathan Sumption because we're going to hear a lot of names, uh, Casey's, Lords. Out of interest, Jonathan Sumption, because he is someone who I think, is to be fair, has been cited so far by both sides of the argument when it comes to uh, this. What is Jonathan Sumption's sort of background, just for listeners?
1: Well, uh, Jonathan Sumption uh, was a Supreme Court judge, uh, retired now. He was never a judge before that. He was a very experienced practitioner. He was a barrister, very successful QC, as he then was. Doing commercial law and very, very, you know, well remunerated, frankly, uh, work. Uh, he won't for his pension. A humble criminal legal aid barrister um, and, and, and a polymath. You know, he's a historian. He's just finished his five-volume history, The Hundred Years' of War. It took him nearly as long as Hundred Years' War to write it, uh, but it is, it is, it is, a, it is a great piece of work. He's, anybody, he's well, he's a polymath. I mean, he's somebody who is is conspicuously uh, good at anything he turns his hand to. Annoyingly, um, but he's not always right. Um, I think he is right about this. Uh, he has, of course, made comments about whether or not Britain should withdraw from the European Convention. I think he said that they probably should. Um, yeah, the
2: Spectator made quite a big piece about. He wrote, I think, a piece in the in the Spectator. He,
1: he did, uh, but but I mean, I don't unpick his logic. I think his ultimate logic is right. It's no good trying to sort of hedge around and qualify. If you do not want any influence of the of the court in Strasbourg or its, its product, then withdrawal is the logical answer. It is the purest answer, um, and I respect that. I totally disagree with it, but I respect it. Um, uh, but 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 there are ways in which you can, through the margin of appreciation. And we talked about that tonight get the court in a place where they understand that um, actually what we've done is explicable, it's reasonable, and is within the parameters of what is acceptable within the convention. And that that does happen a lot. Uh, and it does happen, you know, virtually every day, frankly, in the judgments that are passed by Strasbourg.
2: We've obviously mentioned Jonathan Assumption. Are there any voices that you would encourage people, if, you, if they're talking or if they're writing, other voices from any side of the argument or just people who are, quite frankly, neutral, but have really sort of profound views in this law. Who would you say are good people to, well, for people to read about? Not obviously, yeah. I have a lot of politicians talking, but of course yeah. this is about the law and well, it'd I, be interesting I, to have I, a lot I, of... I
1: entirely agree. Look, I, I think, I think... Um, if you want sensible, I mean, Joshua Rosenberg as a daily blog. I think he's really well informed and writes well. You know, he'll, he'll have a few, mm. but he will give you a, a balanced commentary and I think is often on the money. Of course, a lot of people don't realize that his wife is a great journalist, Melanie Phillips. Um, and, uh, you know, they're quite a, powerful uh, Mm. pair and you know Melanie's not somebody I agree with all the time but very often I do and I I think I think Joshua's a very good legal commentator I think in terms of the primary sources if you like we've lost a few great lawyers in the last few months we've lost Lord Judge who was the Lord Chief Justice a brilliant man and a wonderful leader of the crossbenchers we've lost uh, Lord Simon Brown who was one of the last members of the old House of Lords again very wise on these issues very balanced Um, But I think for constitutional commentary, you know, David Panick is always uh, interesting and worth reading when he when he writes commentary. I think David Anderson is very good, uh, particularly good on counterterrorism and security issues, because he was the government's independent reviewer of legislation. He's a peer in the Lords now who writes well. Um, And and I think that, um, you know, you've got a number of wise heads there who uh, are able to give you, I think, a sense of balance in all of this. Um, You don't always have to agree with it. I don't. But um, I do think that, you know, getting beyond the headlines and just getting into, uh, without having to read, you know, loads of law texts, but just getting into the sort of more general, you know, the background here and understanding the history of it is, I think, important. Because I'll say this about the European court. It is a political court. It's a political construct from the Council of Europe, and therefore it works in a political environment. I've told you about how the ministers can come together and re- reach compromises based upon the judgments, but there's also something called judicial diplomacy. And that has been a conspicuous success for the UK in the last few years, where our senior judges have indeed met and spoken to the senior judges in Strasbourg. And whilst they haven't, of course, tried to you know cook out solutions to, to particular cases, there has been a sort of Really good exchange about you know how we do things, how we well you know display the reasons for things and show evidence for our decisions in a way that I think helps that court to understand the context within we, we, which we make decisions, and that's the margin of appreciation which will be applied by the Strasbourg court in many cases, which often then will lead to a judgment in our favour or certainly not an adverse judgment finding us in breach.
2: Obviously, your role was uh, before Secretary of State for Justice, but actually, Lord Chancellor is the formal title. We've talked a lot about interaction with judges. For those who watched the recent King's uh, King, uh, the opening uh, a State opening of Parliament with His Majesty the King, you would have seen a guy, a very tall guy, thin guy, called Alex Chalk. Uh, big wig, long robe, and he actually presented His Majesty with the speech in the House of Lords, which obviously as a Member of Parliament is quite a big opportunity. Now, what's the relationship with the Lord Chancellor and our judiciary out of interest? Because obviously you are an elected member of the House, you are therefore a politician, and respecting the separation of powers is important, but and obviously checks and balances. But at the same time, there will surely have to be some sort of interaction. So you can discuss what's going on in the legislature but also hear back from the judiciary about the challenges they're facing in their courts.
1: Absolutely, and more than that, the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice, who's the head of the judiciary now,
2: are jointly responsible for the
1: courts and tribunal service. They have a joint executive responsibility, and that means that they have to meet regularly and they have to discuss these things regularly, and there are regular bilaterals between the Lord Chancellor and other senior judges. Entirely proper. The Lord Chancellor, uh, until 2005, uh, New Labour's Constitutional Reform Act was the head of the judiciary and had been since the 1870s. And he, or she, well he it was in those days, wasn't just a member of the judiciary, and they were able to sit in the House of Lords, they were a member of the executive, and they were in the cabinet, and a member of the legislature, normally sitting in the Lords. And therefore that person you know, bestrode all three parts of the constitution. Which is why in the order of precedence, the Lord Chancellor is, after the Archbishop of Canterbury, the second commoner in the land, higher than the Prime Minister. Uh, that did amuse me when I was sworn in as Lord Chancellor before Boris Johnson as first (laughs) Lord of the Treasury. He was looking at me a bit quizzically, and I said, well, I outrank you. (laughs) So uh, I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg, was Lord President. I outranked him as well, Uh, a matter which he always enjoyed. When he wrote to me, he'd always sign, I remain uh, your humble and obedient servant. (laughs) That's very Uh, Jacob. Yeah, so I'd address him, my dear Mogg. He's a great friend, and he's a wonderful constitutionalist. Um, But New Labour, I think, really messed it up. Because they decided to put separation of powers as the key driver for the Constitution, for constitutional reform, rather than checks and balances. And what they did was that they, in effect, they took the Lord Chancellor out of the position of Speaker of the House of Lords. They said, oh, you can't do that anymore. You can't run a legislature and be in an the executive. And then they said, by the way, you can't be a judge anymore because you can't, you can't be in the judiciary. I, I think that's utterly wrong. Utterly wrong. I would have opposed that measure because what he did was reduce the authority of the office of Lord Chancellor mm. to make it a middle to senior cabinet minister who then ended up in the Commons. Jack Straw was the first of the new Lord Chancellors.
0: So they would, have been the, there would have always have been in the Lords before that. Absolutely. I didn't know that. In the Lords for, for
1: centuries. Centuries. And sitting on the wool sack. The wool sack yes. is the Lord Chancellor's Woolsack. And mm. actually, if you, there's one to Parliament that I used to dig out now and again from Henry VIII's time, that said that the Lord Chancellor had rights to sit in the House of Lords.
2: <laughs> did you, uh, did you try that? I did
1: try. There was one occasion I did. <laughs> I did sit in the Lords when we swore in Lindsay Hoyle as Speaker. Huh. I did the commission, and I was able to doff my tricorn hat, which I had to balance or on top of the wig. I mean, I did look like somebody out of the pilots <laughs> of the Caribbean. <laughs> you should look that up. It's a great picture of me looking like uh, an 18th century Monarch is wonderful. Um, but because I believe in the in the traditions, I believe in the office. So my, my aim and ambition had been, had I remained in office, to to do a consultation to reverse some of those changes, mm. to make and actually to make the Lord Chancellor a lawyer, because I think if the Lord Chancellor's a lawyer, they can then really exert authority with the judges. Yeah. And frankly, to take back some of the control, that's a phrase you like, Many uh, <laughs> from the judiciary about the administration of justice, because I think we've overloaded the poor Lord Chief Justice with all these functions. We haven't given them enough uh, resources to do their human resource management, and the Lord Chancellor is accountable for all these billions of spend spent on the courts, and yet he's not really in control. And I think that that could have been a way in which we just redress the balance in a way that has nothing to do with separation of powers that respects the judicial function, you know, the decision in cases and how to list a case, but which gave certainly me as Lord Chancellor much more of a control over how we spent the money in our courts. Um, and I thought that that was something that was overdue. And I'm really sad that in the last couple of years of, you know, Conservative government, we've missed that opportunity to do something good for, for the constitution, to rebalance a very important part of our constitution in a very conservative way.
0: And I've saved the easiest question for last. If tomorrow morning the prime minister calls you up and says, Sir Robert, you're now in charge of giving me the legal advice to ensure I can get a plane off to Rwanda before the next election. What would your advise? Is it possible? Our first question is, is that even possible? And if the answer is yes, what would your advice to him be?
1: Look again at the operation of the scheme and work out whether there are bits in it that are, frankly, glass jaws to the lawyers and take them out. So, you know, be, be radical. You know, I, I can see why they designed a scheme that would, in effect, subcontract the processing to the third country. But frankly, if that's the problem, let's find a way to expedite the cases and get them done and then get them out there. Um, I, I think the principle of getting people on the plane to the third country is more important than where they're processed and who does what. Frankly, in the mind of the public, they want to see a government that is, you know, absolutely following through on what it said it would do. And I don't blame them. We've said it. We said but we not we said we're going to reduce the votes. We said we're going to stop the votes. Mm. And whilst I think it's right for him to claim credits on on reduction this year, and I think it's been a, a success story. He knows that he's going to have to go a long way further than that. But also be realistic. And don't pretend that Rwanda is the be-all and end-all. not going to solve this problem overnight. There are other things that we can do, that he's trying to do, to be fair to him, that he also needs to accentuate. And the sadness for me is that we've made Rwanda not just the centre of this policy, but also totemic about other things and other political issues within the Conservative Party that, frankly, are fights that we don't need to have. And, you know, speaking Frank, Jonathan and I agree on so many things. We've done so many things together on war memorials, yep. and criminal damage and things that matter to our constituents. And I think this is an argument, frankly, we don't need to be having.
0: Well, that's... It, <laughs> if, uh, if the Prime Minister listens, and I'm sure he does, if nothing else to find out what Jonathan's up to, then he now... <laughs> the, the Whip's
2: definitely listen we know not The Whip's that. definitely
0: listening. and he has his advice. So, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. It's a t- tricky topic, but I hope that people go yeah. away... And feel they understand it a bit more. Well, I do my best, and some of what I've
1: said, no doubt, will be capable of interpretation. But that's the majesty and magic of the law. But you know, from my vantage point, having been in government and law and politics for quite a few years, um, I think I'm entitled to uh, give you, uh, you know, an informed viewpoint that I hope will uh, will help uh, colleagues coming to uh, you know deal with a very tough problem. Certainly are. Well,
2: look. We hope you, as listeners, do not only just listen to this and take notes, but listen back actually as you we go through what is going to be a very busy run up to Christmas with legislation potentially coming in before then, but also just watching the Conservative Party ultimately will have this debate and discussion. Uh, I'm sure Rob and I hope uh, in as har- a harmonious way as possible uh, in order to uh, be able to find a solution to for the government to deliver. But of course. Thank you again, as always, for listening and tuning in. Welcome back to season two of Inside Whitehall. We're delighted to have you all tuning in again. We've got loads of great guests coming in, so make sure, however it is that you listen to your pod, that you're clicking the subscribe button. And not only that, that you're leaving us a review, ideally five stars, and you're leaving (laughs) us uh, some comments about what you thought, how we asked the questions, what you thought of the comments that were made, as well as following us on Twitter at WhitehallPodUK, because it's really important that we feel that you're getting information about how Whitehall, how Parliament really works behind the scenes and to have amazing guests like Robert with extensive knowledge in this area is something that not many people get so please as I say tune in and uh, make sure that you're ready for the rest of season two.